Welcome back to Talus Theology. In this episode, Daniel and Amanda are interviewing minister and teacher John Oakes on the topic of hermeneutics. If you like this episode, don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you for listening today. How y'all doing this morning? Doing pretty well. Excellent. I'm doing well, very well. I got a good run in this morning, so now I'm ready to go. You're you're a runner? <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I uh, I've ran I ran seriously once. I was training for a five k, so I ran seriously once for like three months. Um, okay, but man, I started I can't... running thirty years ago, and I haven't quit yet. <laughs> okay, well, you lasted a lot longer I than I did. I hiked to the bottom of the Grand Canyon and back this past weekend. Wow, Holy cow. man! I uh, I tried doing that once actually, except I didn't have any food or water, and like at multiple <laughs> <laughs> and at multiple points going down the Great Canyon, several park rangers stopped me and were like, "Hey, how much? You know, what do you have like food and water?" I'm like, "No, nah, you know, I've got my in my I've got a backpack on me, so they think I have stuff." Like, no, I got my Bible and a journal and a jacket, and and one looked at me dead in the eyes and said, "Have you ever heard of a book called Death in the Grand Canyon?" Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> she's like, well, it's going to be you. <laughs> they're, they're not kidding. I mean, seriously, if you'd gone all the way to the bottom, you very well might have died. I'm glad I didn't because I think that's – because the minute I turned back, I was probably like three quarters of the way down. And the minute I turned back to start hiking back up, I got like six feet and I was exhausted. Yeah. Because, you know, you're going down at first and you're feeling good. Anyway, I was a fool for sure. Here's some bullet points. I have here, John, that became Christian in the 70s. Um, you have a Ph.D., in chemical physics. Um, you've taught chemistry at several colleges, including Gonzaga, uh, University of California in San Diego, and I believe currently at Grossmont. Um, you've authored 11 books, with several being on apologetics and the evidence for God and the history of Christianity. Um, currently, uh, John is the president of Apologetics Research Society, which is a California-based nonprofit, which sponsors evidenceforchristianity.org, which is full of amazing resources. In addition, to being a chemistry teacher. John is also an appointed teacher in our church in San Diego and has taught on biblical subjects to adults, to campus students, uh, singles and teens for more than 170 churches in more than 75 countries and at 50 universities. Uh, that sounds about two or three years ago, but it's close enough. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair enough. Anything you want to update us on? Well, I don't live in San Diego anymore and I am no longer a chemistry professor. I'm now a full-time minister for Bakersfield Church because I retired almost three years ago now. Written a few books since then, et cetera. Yada yada. Excellent. Um, and so you being in Bakersfield is actually how you and Amanda have a connection. Right. Yes. Yeah. My husband and I, we led the Bakersfield Church for almost a decade. And so coming up to Bellingham, John is now leading this group of people that I just absolutely love and adore and who just love Jesus. So I feel of a kindred, like I'm a kindred spirit to you. Like you're, you're taking care of people that I just really care deeply about. So thank you. But yeah, that's how we kind of got to talk and get to know each other. And I was like, you know, John's really smart. We should have him talk about <laughs> hermeneutics. He'd be better than we would be probably talking about this. It's it's really good to have people smarter than us talk. That's yes. really, really important to us. Yes. Well, John, really grateful that you were willing to join us today. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to be taking a bit of a backseat. And because, you know, Amanda and John have a bit more of a rapport, she's going to lead the bulk of the questions. And we're just going to kind of ask questions about interpretation and hermeneutics today. Yeah, um, I think my first question for you 
would just be like, what is hermeneutics? Can you kind of just give us the basics of what it is? Yeah, it's something that Herman does. <laughs> oh, is it Herman's nudics? Yeah. <laughs> hermeneutics is the science slash art of how to interpret the Bible. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, that's it. And um, there's certain aspects of herm hermeneutics that I think pretty much most believers will will accept as a basis of how to do it. But then there's different philosophical approaches to how to do it. So that's that's the discussion we're going to be having, I think. Yeah. Hermeneutics and exegesis are related. Yeah. Uh, because uh, hermeneutics is exegesis is more like trying to pull out the meaning that that it had in its setting back there and kind of create the understanding of how that is relevant to what's going on today. So exegesis is uh, a little bit more related to how to preach, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, hermeneutics is a person in a room sitting down trying to understand it. And exegesis is a little bit more uh, closely related. The way, you know, the way I was taught it was, you know, you're, our ex obviously all of us want to exegete a passage, you know, well, and our hermeneutics are going to obviously vastly uh, uh, influence our exegesis. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. It's kind of like separating soul from spirit, <laughs> you know, separating exegesis from hermeneutics. I think the average listener probably doesn't need to worry about the distinction. They both have to do with trying to understand or reveal the meaning of the text. Well, I love the way you're like the average reader doesn't really need to really concern so much themselves with it. But because I feel like 10 years ago, nobody was saying the word hermeneutics. I mean, I heard it going to school. I'm a lit major, right? And so hermeneutics had a lot to do with like theory and how you read and interpret a book or a text. Um, so I heard it in kind of the academic field. And then I would hear, you know, my husband, who is a preacher, right? Talk about hermeneutics. Um, but I never heard anybody talk about that word or this concept before um, outside of those settings. But now I feel like everybody everywhere is, is talking about hermeneutics and it's become this thing where your average everyday follower of Jesus is talking about hermeneutics. Um, what do you think has like changed or happened to kind of like make this word become something so popular and on part of the ethos of everyday Christianity? What do you mean in our, in our fellowship or, or yeah. just everywhere? I, I, I assume you mean in our fellowship. I think in our fellowship specifically, I mean, we, this is a podcast for our fellowship, you know what I mean? To help, um, to talk about certain issues, but I do hear it pretty much everywhere. You listen to podcasts and books and all kinds of stuff. It's everywhere. But yeah, I think right. even maybe well, even specifically go. our fellowship, like what has happened to where like just every day. I'd say even more so, uh, even more so our fellowship. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, well, um, if you were hanging out with the teacher types in our, our movement the last 20, 30 years, you would have heard this word all the time. Mm -hmm. It's just that the average disciple in the International Church of Christ wasn't paying much attention to it at all, which is part of the problem. I think that's part of the problem we're having right now, actually. Yeah. Um, so, you know, why? Um, uh, I, I think be because of the kind of blowback 
into Christianity from issues related to uh, social justice, um, the gender issues, uh, kind of the, the, the moral, um, you know, debates that go on in, in our, specifically here in America. I think you're, when you say everywhere, I think America, <laughs> the United States, this is an American thing. Uh, yeah, so there's a lot of things that matter. Uh, I think uh, sort of the advent of postmodernism, which is not a new thing in 2021, no. is not a new thing at all. But I think sort of the the, the, the effect of postmodernism on how people think about so many things, I think, is maybe causing people to maybe pay a little bit more attention to hermeneutics. I don't know. I mean, I first taught a class on hermeneutics, general class for the church in San Diego, probably at least 15 years ago. You know, but uh, not many people came. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. Um, I, I don't have a really solid answer to that question, honestly. Uh, but I, I do think the current social climate is causing people to think a little bit more about these kinds of things. Yeah, sure. And you know, generally, almost everybody who cares about hermeneutics, it seems like a biblical hermeneutics is the most important uh, as you know, uh, hermeneutics, you're, uh, you're a lit major. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So hermeneutics has to do with how do you read anything, how you read Ulysses, how you yeah. read. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, but I think careful hermeneutics, uh, I, I would imagine there's probably more works on the hermeneutics of the Bible than practically all other books combined. Yeah. I would, Even I would actually agree with that. 100% biblical hermeneutics. I think there's even more of a, a science and an art behind it as you would have as you put it earlier than even in literary literary there's and there's not as many hermeneutics in the literary world honestly and, yeah postmodernism has made it hard to do hermeneutics because yes. uh you know basically the author doesn't get to have the right to speak through his or her own works it's like mm -hmm. the reader determines what it means well that's really confusing yes it is postmodernism tends to not be like lit majors favorite thing because of that reason yeah. right father i want to throw it down i'm not against postmodernism i think postmodernism has added a lot especially mm -hmm. to understand of history yes and culture um uh if i had a choice to, to live in a, a quotes modern or postmodern world i'd pick the postmodern even though i am myself yeah modern. no i agree it's just that it causes problems including hermeneutical problems clearly and that's part of what we're dealing with here. Briefly, maybe it'd be helpful that we just state outright why biblical hermeneutics carries more weight than the hermeneutic I use to interpret the newspaper, right? Well, like because the Bible claims to contain truth. I mean, although, of course, postmodernists are not sure about yeah. that, but unless you, you know, uh, there, there, at least there's an implication of objective moral truth. Yeah. So if you want to understand what um, Homer was trying to say, I mean, that's a really, really interesting question. But if you know what Homer's trying to say, that doesn't mean that it, it affects what you need to do with your life unless you choose to. Yeah. So because the Bible, I mean, uh, the Bible, you know, says about itself, all scriptures inspired by God. And, and, you know, Jesus says, you're going to be judged by my work, you know, as I didn't come to judge, but the words I spoke will judge. Well, yeah, yeah I mean, clearly the implications are, are vastly bigger. So, of course, sure. biblical hermeneutics is going to be. Yeah, because it matters how we live. Like if 
the scriptures are absolute truth, then we have no other option but to actually obey and live by them. They have implications for our our life over just reading right. a normal text like Homer or Ulysses or the Iliad or whatever it is. Right. But even a, even an atheist would agree that biblical hermeneutics is more, uh, you know, whatever. It needs to be done more carefully than hermeneutics of, of Homer just because of religion in general. Mm-hmm. Just the hermeneutic of any religious text would be um, a different kind of thing. Yeah. Because religion in general claims to have a moral content. Yeah. Truth, if you will. Right. So biblical hermeneutics just carries so much weight because it's us trying to interpret, figure out, and, and live out God's truth, right? God's God's right. order, God's design. But Muslims would say not the same thing about the Quran, but they'd say probably fairly similar things okay. about the Quran. I, I think right now, you know, when you go when you go look up hermeneutics, there, there's a million different kinds of biblical hermeneutics right now. Um, I think what might be helpful, because John, I know you're also, you know, you're passionate about church history. I, I would love to kind of hear, and this is my second follow-up question, I would love to hear, you know, whatever research, whatever, whatever work you've done on this, kind of what the history of biblical hermeneutics has been, at least the best we can tell. How is it transformed? throughout the history of the church and maybe kind of where does that leave us today? Uh, you just asked a 20 minute question. Are you sure on that one? I'm very, I'm very sure. There were two schools of hermeneutics, if you will, in the early church, the school in Antioch and the school at Alexandria. The school in Antioch was more interested in historical critical approach, which is fairly similar to what emerged uh, after the Reformation, the, under the influence of, say, Calvin, Zwingli, and others, sort of historical critical approach. But the dominant hermeneutic of the early church was the allegorical interpretation, which was the same thing that, that the Jews were doing, Philo and others in the first century. So they interpreted, you know, there was like three or four different levels of meaning. Uh, there's what it says and what it, you know, what it appears to mean. And then there's this sort of allegorical thing, which you could put any, you could drive truckloads through that window sure. of allegory. Yeah. So, um, and that was the dominant hermeneutic throughout the Middle Ages, really. It, it wasn't until we're approaching, um, you know, the, the, the Renaissance and, um, and William Ockham and, and others who began to uh, try to apply, um, um, you know, sort of a, um, a, a more of a rational approach, um, do empirical, take empirical things. And so um, pretty much the most important hermeneutics person during the Reformation would be John Calvin. And he began to interpret the Bible in terms of historical critical approach. I would say the hermeneutics of John Calvin would be pretty much the accepted hermeneutics across the evangelical world mostly. So we're entering the modern age with Calvin, although Calvin was a bridge person, whether he was a modern or not is debatable if you learn much about John Calvin. But he was really into uh, the, the idea of different dispensations, the dispensationalism, uh, which is something that is not important generally for people in the restoration movement. Yeah. As we're um, heading into the modern era, uh, when the modern era began, you, know, you can debate that. 
uh, you know, the you have the uh, Enlightenment, uh, Newton, Voltaire, Rousseau, all that sort of stuff. But the idea of essentially um, approaching the the Bible scientifically, uh, this is under the influence of people like uh, Francis Bacon, who was a hero mm -hmm. of Alexander Campbell or John Locke, yeah. and the uh, Scottish School of Common Sense Philosophy. And so uh, the, the Church of Christ, it, when I talk about modernism and postmodernism, if I try to give an example of the, the perfect, utter example of what a modernist church is, it would be the Church of Christ or the Restoration Movement. Okay. Because they, they basically, Alexander Campbell wanted to, really felt like you could answer every single question from the Bible by analyzing it essentially scientifically, using an inductive, deductive approach. So uh, the, the basic summary is, is a command, example, necessary demonstration. That was the hermeneutic uh, right up until the 70s, 80s, and 90s in the Churches of Christ. Wow. Uh, the Churches of Christ are dividing over hermeneutics now, but uh, they were solid on that. So the idea is, uh, in order, you, basically, you could find a proposition to answer every important question. This is as as much a modernist way of thinking as could possibly be, you know. So we're looking for commands, examples, and necessary demonstrations. So uh, every question, such as the woman's role, or or even the whole, I'll, I'll use a typical Church of Christ thing. How many cups can you use at the Lord's Supper? You know, oh, sure. And yeah. was there a command on that? If there's not, is there an example on that? Well, yeah, he, he passed the cup, all right? Now, the Jews would mention probably there are actually several cups, but never mind that. And so um, so a very, very analytical, yeah. uh, inductive, deductive approach to finding the uh, biblical answers to any given question, seeking tr absolute truths in the Bible. Yeah. All right, now, so I could talk about the rules of hermeneutics, and I'm telling you, that person and the postmodern person are actually, believe it or not, going to use pretty much the same rules. Okay. I could explain that. The, the postmodern reaction against modernism, which I think is a legitimate reaction, yeah. it, it, but, but it's moved, it's kind of, to me, I see it as a pendulum swing. Um uh, the, the, the the hermeneutics of Campbell and and the Restoration movement in general is uh, good on doctrine, weak on principle. In fact, yeah. terrible on principle, horrible. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> unable to deal with gray areas. There there were no gray areas, and 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 whatever applied in one situation applied in any situation. That's one of the problems with modernism. Modernism can't handle culture. Modernism is just. I mean, there is only one culture, and it's the Western white. You know, imperialist culture. Yeah. I mean, there's so many bad things about modernism. But honestly, if you want to have some good doctrine in your church, let's just go for it. You know, and I'm I'm afraid the postmodernist perspective is going to essentially walk away from doctrine almost entirely. Yeah, and that's of concern. So, uh, you know, I, I'm reading a book right now. It's it's a great book. I want to recommend it. By the way, just you know, the conclusion of this person is probably the opposite of the conclusion that you and I reach on this issue, okay? Just a warning. <laughs> okay. But I, this is a really, really good book. And I think even though he will reach a different conclusion for you, I think you should read it. Yeah. It's Excellent. John Mark Hicks. He's a Church of Christ guy. I've met him personally. He spoke at our teacher's conference. 
And he's an amazing scholar and just a beautiful person. Uh, and so this, this book is a much about his own journey away from the hardcore uh, command example, necessary demonstration, speak where the Bible speaks, silent where the Bible is silent, hermeneutics, as it is about the women's issue. And, 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 and even the, the harm that was caused by yeah. uh, unable to have a nuanced view of, of uh, understanding the effect of culture and determining yeah. how to interpret the Bible. All right. That's excellent. I think, John, what you're saying is is super important because I think so much of the history that we come out of that is that very dogmatic, you can't, like you said, no nuance, no gray. And so that's why you have like in the history of the Church of Christ splitting over whether or not to put water fountains in the foyer yeah. or whether Crazy to have a stuff. kitchen, right. like just ridiculous stuff because there's so much like if the Bible is silent, then we are silent. If the Bible speaks, we speak. And there wasn't any room for gray. And there there was a lot of hurts and harms that come out of that. And that is our that is where we come from right so right it's not it's not our hermeneutic as a fellowship no, no. but it's our history it's our roots yes. so it affects how right. we think so that dna is yeah. in there that dna is in but there. anyway john mark hicks what he does is he looks at his former self he reacts in horror to it and i believe he overswings the pendulum i'm convinced yeah. of that I, I read stuff in his book and i find myself saying no, that's not true. That no, that's not true. Uh, is a, a a wonderful scholar, far better scholar than I am. I, I'm not even in the same league, um, and I find his some of his arguments quite compelling. But to me, it's it's the journey that's more compelling. On actually, yeah, uh, for me personally, just seeing that because you know, I, I there's a sense in which unlike you all who did not come out of the Church of Christ, I did. I was baptized in 78 when we yeah. still were the Church of Christ. And my preacher was a Church of Christ Bible school trained preacher. Yeah. And Tom Brown, he went to Abilene Christian University and all that stuff. You know, so. No, I get that because my husband comes out of the traditional Church of Christ. Who does? Um, yes. And so. He become what he is now. That's interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of joking. No, but <laughs> I mean, I do. I seen, I've seen him have to go through his own similar journey with yeah. that, um, where like, I don't have that history. So there is a lot, you know, just wanting to make sure like we're not just doing things to be dogmatic and. Yeah, that journey is important. John, I'd love to ask kind of among all that, what hermeneutic today is considered good, reliable? Like what's the yeah. what's the most academically accepted form of hermeneutic? By who? I mean, the, the problem is, is when people try to say this is the correct hermeneutic, I think they get in trouble. I, I just, yeah. Okay. But uh, when people say things like command example, necessary demonstration, they get in trouble. Because they're defining a, a particular hermeneutic as if that's the answer to all possible okay. kinds of questions. There's different kinds of questions that honestly require a different hermeneutic. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And so uh, John Mark Hicks says the Bible is narrative, it's story, and essentially says that's all it is. But I believe that's not all it is. No. And if that if that were all it is, then his hermeneutic would be uh, pretty good. In fact, I think it is a pretty good hermeneutic. But I think to limit it to that, 
let, let's, I'll, I'll play the Kit McKean versus Mainline Church of Christ thing about uh, off is kind of an explanation, okay? So uh, the, the Church of Christ would say, where the Bible speaks, we speak. Where the Bible's silent, we're silent. In other words, whatever the Bible says is true or authorizes is true, and author, we authorize it. But if the Bible does not speak to it, then we will not speak. If the Bible does not allow it, then we won't do it. All right. And so Kit McKean's smart guy, uh, smart in his own way, uh, says where the Bible speaks, we're silent. Believe it or not, when the Church of Christ says where the Bible speaks, we speak. And when Kit McKean says where the Bible speaks, we're silent, they were saying the same thing. All right. Believe it or not, they're saying mm -hmm. the same thing. Both of them are saying where the Bible speaks authoritatively, we accept that authority yeah. fully. So yeah. whether you say where we speak, we speak. But, all right. but it's on the other side, there's a, there's a huge thing where the Bible speaks, we're silent, where he said where the Bible's silent, we speak. In other words, if the Bible does not specifically say whether it's right or wrong, that means we can do whatever we want, essentially. Yeah. That was his hermeneutic. And I would say uh, n neither of the above. They're both wrong. <laughs> yeah. Because where the Bible okay. speaks, you could say, we'll be silent, we speak. I I'm all in on that. And those are the basic rules of interpretation, okay? But where the Bible does not speak, then we have principles we apply. And we even also, God gave us a brain. We even use our experience. We use the wisdom game. Induction, deduction, revelation. That's a class I've taught a number of times. Revelation is where the Bible speaks. You know, we speak. Uh, that's deduction. Induction is, uh, that's revelation. Deduction is, you know, the necessary inference of, of Church of Christ. But then uh, I, I believe God expects us to learn from experience as well. Mm -hmm. And that it's not illegitimate to... Um, use experience to help us even to understand the Bible. So basically then the modernist says the Bible is a source of rules and laws and regulations. And so we scientifically analyze it, we come up with the answer and we tell people what the answer is. And that answer would be virtually unaffected by culture, virtually completely unaffected by culture at all. Therefore it won't acknowledge the possibility of a cultural aspect to explain the reason of something that's stated in the Bible, uh, such as the scriptures you're going to be analyzing. Uh, and then the, the opposite of that would be the one where it says it's, it's essentially, it's a narrative. The Bible is a narrative and essentially only a narrative. Uh, I'll read a couple quotes uh, from John Mark Hicks on, on the, along those lines. Okay. Uh, and I just finished um, a master's degree program. Uh, from Rochester University, and I want to recommend that program, but you have to understand that program is coming from where this book is coming from. So eat the fish and spit out the bones here. Mm. So I'll, I'll read a statement here. So here we go. He says, this means that every text in scripture is occasional in nature. What it means by that is there is not a single text which sits alone. This is a this is about as postmodern a thing as you could possibly say. He says, every text in scripture is occasional in nature. So therefore, uh, if it was in a different occasion, he would have said something different. Here we go. 
It was written to an ancient people in a particular setting to accomplish a specific thing or to address a specific problem. In other words, here you go. Here's the quote. Nothing in the Bible is written as a timeless, contextless proposition. So they basically reject the idea that there are any timeless propositions in the Bible at all. Yeah. Right? That's the pendulum swing. All right, and here we go. I'll go down. Just this is on page sixty-five in this book that I highly recommend. By the way, I I, okay. I like this book. I, you understand this, okay? It says we hear the story of God in Scripture. The Creator, God, liberated a people from slavery, invited them to participate in God's mission. He gave birth to the Messiah, who was sent uh, from God to liberate humanity from its slavery to sin. Basically, what he's saying is the Bible is this. And this only. It is a story about what God did to and through and for his people. It says, this story pervades the Bible. It is the drama of scripture. All right, and then he goes on. He says, every proposition in scripture is situated in and arises out of that story. So it's not the proposition. It's the story. Further, if every proposition in Scripture has a culturally situated context, then there are, here's a quote, there are no contextless, timeless statements in Scripture. Blah, drum, bomb dropped. Yeah. Because in the beginning it was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I believe that is a timeless statement in Scripture. And then he, he, he recognizes the implication of this right away. It says, herein lies the hermeneutical crux. There's that word. Yeah. Right? It says, if there are no specified timeless prescriptions in biblical text, how do you discern a norm grounded in the story that lies behind a situated application? The answer is, that's a good question. You know, yeah. how do we decide? Yeah. And the answer is uh, we ne we never will be able to decide. We we won't be able to come up with the answer. Now I I would agree with John Mark Hicks in this. I believe the first thing the Bible is is a story and a narrative. I believe that it's that more than any other single thing. Personally, I, I find this to be a compelling truth. And as I try to explain Genesis and Exodus and you know, Jesus is the fulfillment of these things. I believe he is primarily the fulfillment of a narrative. So I believe the postmodern view of the Bible is closer to correct than Alexander Campbell's view. I, I, I agree with that, but I don't, I believe he is, I believe he's taken that pendulum way over here. And that's part of what's creating the problem that you are dealing with right now. Yeah. So you have people that have swallowed this hook, line, and sinker. Right? And uh, this is the postmodern perspective on the Bible. This is this is the postmodern hermeneutic. Yeah. And I, I want to have compassion on people like John Mark Hicks and Mark Love, who the head of the program of the Masters I just finished. These guys are dyed in the wool here in this stuff. But I, you know, I want to have compassion on these guys because you sure. understand where they came from, you can see why they ended up here. Yeah. And, and I appreciate that because we don't want to demonize anybody who sees things differently or maybe, you know, 
is working through things and the pendulum has gone maybe a little too far. Like, but unless it causes division in the church, then we got a problem. Yes, it does. It causes division and it ends discussion and all kinds of things. And I think for me, because this is what I've, I've been experiencing and seeing is that there is a lot of things that we need to talk about and deal with and change and, you know, figure out in our, our church um, family, but how do we do this without throwing the baby out with the bathwater? Right. Um, And that's where I, I, I get concerned is I am seeing this very extreme, like you were saying, postmodern, um, take of the scriptures where it's like there is no absolute truth and everything is cultural and there is no timeless principles. And so we look at the at the scriptures and we're like, well, we have to look at them through our own lens of experience and we have to look at them through our own lens of um, what's going on in society today. And I feel like that's dangerous because if that truly is the case, like, where is the authority? Who has the authority over what it means to be a Christian? And, you know, if we're taking that, that those timeless principles away from the scriptures, where does our authority come from? And so trying to wrestle through people like that, and then people will be like, I, you know, some, a lot of times they say, well, Jesus is our authority. Okay. But what we know about Jesus comes from the scriptures. So if we can't trust the inerrancy or trust the divine in- inspiration of the scriptures and that there are timeless principles in them, again, who is our authority? I know there's no one right hermeneutic, and I agree with you. We we apply different hermeneutics for different things that we are reading, right? What would be some respectable ways of being able to read the Bible, ask questions, apply good hermeneutics to reading our scriptures. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, what I would say is I, I'm going to use an analogy here. Um, I, there's a, um, you could look this, you could find this. In Picasso did a series of drawings. Picasso, you know, he did his cubism and all that. I don't, I'm not a mm-hmm. person, right? But the series of drawings, at first, is this he draws a bull, and it's it's incredible, perfect bull. It's just it's it's almost like a photograph. Yeah. And then he has a series of drawings in which he progressively produces the the abstract essence of bull. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And the thing is that the thing on the on the other end of the series that's all the only art he ever did. He never did just a bull. Or, yeah. But the point is. He could do the bull. Mm-hmm. In fact, until you can do the bull, you shouldn't do that other thing. Yeah. So I would yeah. say there's there's these basic rules of interpretation, which, by the way, uh, John Mark Hicks is an expert in, and he 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 uses. In fact, he does a an, a really really good job of analyzing Second Timothy. You know, all the ones you're going to be going through. His analysis of this verse is as good as anybody you're going to get. Okay, so I th- I think we need to start by learning the sort of the rules of hermeneutics. Okay, so when I when I've taught hermeneutics, I taught just the, the just the basic stuff. Mm-hmm. I printed out. I've got a here we go. I I've got about eight hour class on hermeneutics. Just go to my website. You can, <laughs> but it's the basic stuff. It's like 
how to draw the bow. Yeah. So we need to learn how to draw the bow. We need to learn how to understand what the Bible's actually saying. So rules such as every passage has uh, one meaning. The most obvious meaning is usually the correct one. Allow the author's explanation to stand, although postmodernists don't like that. Uh, allow always interpret a passage in within the context of the book, the situation. Yeah. Interpretation should conform to the environment of the author. Right to rightly divide books by dispensation and covenant. Interpret every passage in light of all others. One, you know, all these all these rules. Now, I think uh, what we need to do is we need to start by. Uh, this sort of generic hermeneutic that we all agree with, which is how to understand what the person's saying when, in the language being used, whether it's symbolic or literal, you know, what kind of idioms are being used, and uh, you know, and understanding the cultural context, uh, uh, to, you know, all, all, all this sort of stuff. Sure. So I think. We need to start doing that before we start going off into these other kinds of of hermeneutical approaches. I think we just need to, like I said, to use the analogy, we need to learn how to draw the bull. Right. Yeah. And people are talking about hermeneutics. They're they're like trying to to do the abstract drawing of Picasso, and they don't even know what they're talking about. So I, yeah. I I'm kind of concerned about that. So I I think people probably should you know, kind of study the boring, classic hermeneutical <laughs> approach to uh, breaking down a scripture, understanding what it means. And for that, by the way, Alexander Campbell, the, the Church of Christ is really good at that stuff. Yeah. Like my professors uh, in my master's degree would were, were kind of like, oh, those Church of Christ professors at Abilene, all they do is that kind of stuff. It's like, yeah, well, they're really, they're really good at it. And yeah. what's wrong with that? So I, I think, yeah, we just need to to start by understanding uh, how to analyze the scriptures and figure out what it's saying. Yeah, I think especially for just your average Christian who's not going to take, you know, unfortunately, an eight-hour class on hermeneutics or whatever. You know, they they may listen to a podcast and hear about, you know, the redemptive lens model hermeneutic and how this is how you need to read the Bible or they may, you know, hear some yes, postmodern yeah, yeah. and that sounds really good and interesting. And they, they go for it. Like how can we really help and train just your average Christian to really have good hermeneutics and, and in a way that's like, uh, yeah, I already answered that question. Yeah. Just and if they don't want to take the eight hour class, that means they're lazy. <laughs> they need to stop being lazy and take Ooh. the eight hour class. Seriously. It's like trying to interpret the Greek in the, in the New Testament, and you've only had two semesters of Greek. I mean, as if you are in any position to begin to analyze the Greek text. A little bit of knowledge of Greek is dangerous. Yeah, do right? talk and, about it. Right. Well, Definitely. a little bit of knowledge of, of, of hermeneutics is dangerous. So we need to, I mean, you're kind of... I, I don't mean to be critical of you, Amanda, but you're kind of giving people an excuse to be lazy there. No, call it out. And my, so that's my answer. That's my answer is if somebody's been a Christian for two or three years and hasn't doesn't have the the, the conviction to learn how to study the Bible, they just need to repent. And our churches need to offer classes on hermeneutics, which 
in this little tiny church here in Bakersfield. I offered a class on hermeneutics. Now only 15 people came, but you know, I, I don't know how to fix that. Yeah. So I think people need to know the basics and to know it solidly well before they uh, begin to do this specialty kind of stuff. Um, yeah. I, so I really connect with that. I think one, because I, I do think I feel the need, man, we just need to be teaching more on hermeneutic. We need to be educating, you know, a little, you know, more. Um, but also because I actually was an art student. I got, I got my bachelor in fine arts and it's absolutely, yeah, it's like absolutely right before the, you know, painting one, we had to do still lifes, right? It's like, we couldn't do our, we couldn't do our own fun work. We we weren't developing any theses. They're like, see that sphere, that styrofoam sphere, learn how to paint it. Yeah. (laughs) Learn how to draw. So it's super basic. And then, yeah, that's, so I actually really connect. Exactly what I'm talking about. Fantastic. It's really good example. Yeah. No, I had the same thing with dance. I was a minor dance minor. I love dance. And it was the same thing. You take like 18 years of classical ballet before you are even allowed to take modern dance because you have to know the rules before you can break them. Right. Yeah. No, I think it is really important. And John, I think in today's age and what we're dealing with, with the church, with a lot of, you know, postmodern um, theory or progressive theology, and I'm not saying progressive in the political way, that's literally what it's called is progressive theology. A lot of that stuff coming in, I think if we don't have the basic understandings of how to read the Bible, we're not going to be able to sift through because honestly, in these things, there is a lot of good. There really genuinely is. They are addressing things that we need to address in the church. They are reading a lot of things in a correct fashion. But then there are these other things that really, truly are not a great way to interpret or read the Bible or to. Yeah, that's for sure. They start breaking things down and it's dangerous. It, it, like I said, like you said, the pendulum swung the, other, the whole way or or throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And so I do think it is very important for Christians today to understand how to read the Bible. So when they hear these new hermeneutics, they can sift through and say, this is good and this is not, right? Here's a perfect example. Peter ends how the Bible really works. This, this unlike John Mark Hicks books, which I love, this book makes me want to puke, honestly. The thing is, this was a textbook in my master's program. And, and this guy, I don't think he believes the Bible's inspired by God at all. It, mm, you know, yeah. he says the Bible's just wisdom. And it's like, the, the thing is, somebody who actually respects the Bible and God should write this book. not Because the project he's setting out in this book is a legitimate project. Mm. Help people understand what the Bible actually is, and the Bible is a bunch of different genres. and And if you try to read Psalms the way you read Romans, yeah. and if you if you don't understand the ancient context, and you know mm-hmm. the project this guy's setting out, and what he's trying to get people to think about is something that I think all Christians need to be able to do. Yeah. But we shouldn't use this book. This book. You know, <laughs> I mean, I. I yeah. I mean, I'm, I I can't get two pages and I'm I'm boiling mad because this guy I I it's like pornography to me to oh, even gosh. read that book. The fact that we had to read that book for my master's program it's like 
anyway. Yeah, I think it brings me to like another question, like in something that you said, like that the the author of that book of how the Bible actually works or whatever it was called, like you don't even believe he believes the Bible is divinely inspired, right? Um, well, he would say that he does. I, I guarantee you he would say that he does, but I believe he does not. Yeah, there's, yeah. I, his definition well, of inspiration would not be my definition. Yeah, and that's, that's even one of the things I'm seeing today in some of these um, newer hermeneutics is just even some people actually claiming and being honest that they don't believe that the Bible is divinely inspired or that the Bible is inerrant or that it has authority. How do we know that the, that the Bible is inerrant, that it isn't just written by white men who had an agenda supporting um, misogyny or patriarchy or power holds, like, you know what I mean? That they, that they interpreted scripture or wrote scripture in a way to help. I'm, I'm feeling some power. emotion right now. I'm feeling some emotion, Amanda. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. So by the way, no, the, these people would attack inerrancy. Absolutely. Yeah. But I, yeah. they would, they wouldn't, probably would not attack inspiration. Okay. I, I think you're most likely you're not accurately quoting someone. I could be wrong. Maybe they literally said it's not inspired. Yeah. So we have to ask ourselves, uh, what do we mean by inspiration and what do mm -hmm. we mean by inerrancy? Okay. And uh, the reason I believe the Bible is inspired by God is because it is. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming. Yeah. You know, I see, uh, you know, Old Testament prophecies, 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11, yeah. uh, pierced my hands and feet, Psalm 22. Uh, they will look at him, they pierced, Zechariah 12. Uh, on a donkey, the cult of full of a donkey, uh, Zechariah 9. Uh, you know, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Micah uh, 5, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and the, the types and prefigures and foreshadows, the fact that when Jesus says he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament, that is true on so many levels in so many ways. The Bible is inspired by God. It, yeah. it is. And I, I believe, uh, you know, uh, where Peter says that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I'm convinced of that. Yeah. All right. And uh, the, our uh, opponents, if you want to call it that, in some of these debates, uh, they would formally say they agree with that, most likely. And yet, when they start talking, you'll find yourself saying, are you sure you do? Yeah. But th that's, you know, their definition of inspiration may not be the same as yours. So you have to be careful there. But then there's the question of in inerrancy. And that that's a very, that's a, a, a you know, a bed of thorns to, to wade into. Uh, and that's, that's, in fact, the, the, how the Bible actually works kind of is going into that question. Yeah. Uh because you know David says against you you only have I sinned well that well that's not true I mean, he sinned against uh, his, uh, his 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 wife he sinned against Uriah that's poetry you know what and in yeah. the book of yeah. Proverbs is not God speaking to man it's man speaking to God I mean and that's mm -hmm. what that's what Psalms is so uh, so I believe in it, the inerrancy of the scripture, but trying to define inerrancy in, in a way that holds up 
in a postmodern world, in any world for that matter, is tough. Uh, but I believe the Bible is, I, I would defend inerrancy, uh, um, but it's a bit of a tough task to the point where you almost want to find a different word to use. And that's what people tend to do. But, um, you know, anyway, there's, there's a whole range there. Um, even within our fellowship, there are people that believe that God accommodates. God allows false information on, on cosmology into the Bible to accommodate uh, the, the view, the ancient view. I don't agree with that. I, I, don't, I don't agree that God ever accommodates false information. Yeah. I, I believe the Bible is inspired and inerrant. <laughs> okay. Um, but to, to defend inerrancy in an open forum is, is a tough thing, honestly. Uh, first, first off, uh, we don't have any of the words of Jesus, virtually. We have maybe half a dozen words of Jesus because yeah. uh, we have a Greek New Testament and Jesus didn't even speak Greek, mm -hmm. right? So, and yeah. and the, the Sermon on the Mount is not a transcript, probably, of any one sermon that Jesus actually gave. Yeah. And, and when you start revealing these kinds of things, which I believe are actually probably correct statements, if you reveal that to a person who had an extremely simplistic view of, you know, sort of a wooden view of inerrancy. Yeah. It is, yeah. So we need to inoculate people up, uh, uh, about those things. That's not an easy task. That's not yeah. an easy task at all. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think teaching a good hermeneutic is straightforward. Explaining inerrancy in, in the light of, of the facts, <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty tough task. It's a large topic. Even if there's like one thing, like one reason where you would say why you would view the Bible as being yeah. inerrant. Well, Jesus raised from the dead. That's that, that kind of works for me. Yeah. Jesus is God, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And Jesus clearly considered the Old Testament inspired and inerrant. Mm -hmm. yeah. And if he did, you know, I hate to be overly simplistic on you here, but sometimes it's pretty simple. Yeah. You know, sure. Jesus was raised from the dead. And if Jesus believed in the flood, then I guess I do too. I mean, that's good enough for me. Yeah. yeah. And sure. I do believe it. Jesus said, you know, Jesus said, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? And everybody's like, uh, uh, he's demon possessed. Well, what's that have to do with the question? You know? <laughs> yeah. Jesus said that uh, I am the resurrection and the life. And, and then he raised Lazarus from the dead. I mm -hmm. mean, uh, to me, it, it's almost common sense that yeah. God, you know, that God could, if he wanted to, produce an inspired and inerrant thing. Um, yeah. and, but I'll be honest with you, at some point, faith does step in here. Yes. I, I believe that for me personally, the Bible has, has earned the benefit of the doubt for me uh, a long time ago, a long time ago. The Bible earned the benefit of the doubt. Uh, you know, so Hebrews 11, 1, it says, by faith, you know, faith involves things that cannot be seen. Yes. So I can't prove to you that David killed Goliath with just one shot. I can't prove that to you. Yeah. All right. And so there is there is a faith element in my belief in the Bible being inerrant. And, and I have to look through, speaking of looking at the Bible through a lens, how about looking at it through the lens of faith? How about that one? Sure. About, yeah. Forgive my sarcasm yeah. here, but how about letting that one be the faith through which we look at the Bible? 
instead of all these other things. And I think people have lost, uh, some people even in our fellowship have lost that perspective. Sure. Which is, yeah. hello, God is behind this. Do you think he could get the right books? Do you think he could get the right books in the Bible? Do you think he could keep the uninspired ones out? I mean, I, that, now that's a logical argument, but it works for me. Yeah. I, you know, I've, I've heard statements that there's all these contradictions in the Bible, right? And then I analyze uh, 496 of them. Uh, I'm not kidding. I mean, go to my website. And at the end of the day of the 496, I'm left with two out of 496. I'm kind of puzzled about the other ones are like, that's not a contradiction <laughs> at all. Yeah. What yeah. are you talking about? Yeah. Sure. So the Bible speaks for itself over time as I analyze it. As I, as I look at it from the point of view that it is inspired and inerrant, I find myself never being wrong. So yeah. there you yeah. go. Yeah, that's a that I mean, looking at it that way has even been helpful for me because, you know, I'm coming from a background of, of atheism. But I mean, if if yeah, if to me, it does really come down to the resurrection If Jesus really rose from the dead. He is who he said he is. And he's God. Yeah. Giving us a book the way he wants it is is a smaller task. Yeah. So right. that's what I have to remind myself, despite yeah. that, that the question of inerrancy is a very, very complicated mm -hmm. question. Well, I love that you brought in the perspective of faith too because appreciate it i do think that that is is true i think for me what i've seen though a lot of times with um some of these kind of more postmodern hermeneutics and questioning the inerrancy of the bible or the divine inspiration or whatever people really genuinely um lose that aspect of faith but they also just in general lose their faith. Like that's been kind of what I've seen the trajectory. I know I've seen it happening. happen. I'm very concerned about that. And that that's my concern with a lot of these, these more postmodern hermeneutics um, kind of entering in is that people don't yeah. know what to do with them and they go down this trail, but they don't come back from it. It doesn't produce more faith in them. It produces no faith a lot of times and leaves them feeling very hurt, leaves them feeling like they've been lied to leads them, you know what I mean? And so that's my concern with some of these more um, newer hermeneutics. And can I stop you there? I have a thought on that. Yeah. If, 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 do I permission? Yeah. I, I want to play devil's advocate on that just a little bit. Yeah. I think that if we, stick to the old hermeneutic, I think we're doing people just as much a disservice, if not yes. more. Yeah. All right. And so, um, so that's the thing is we need to listen to these people and actually listen to them and talk to them, mm -hmm. interact and, and learn from them and then incorporate what, what is good into what we're doing. So uh, if we kind of retreat into our little camp here and, and not interact, I, I, don't, I don't think we should do that either. I'm not saying that you're saying we should, but uh, you know, um, yeah, because the place, you know, again, here's this journey. The place where John Mark Hick ends up is better than the place where he started. And we need to recognize that as well. Yeah. And so the, the way, one way to respond to this is to tell people, don't even read that book, how the Bible actually works. And don't even, you know, listen to uh, person X or Y that we're not naming right now that we're concerned that are saying certain things right now. Yeah, And I, I don't think that's the way to approach it. I, I think that, um, that we need to, but we need to talk about these things uh, 
we need to talk about these things and instead of letting people that are saying things that we think aren't healthy talk about the same things. Mm. Uh, so it's pretty easy to present a simplistic view of the Bible, which, by the way, for a baby Christian, that's probably just fine. But, uh, you know, we need to produce maturity in our, the members in our church over yes. time. Yep. Yes. And that maturity is going to involve uh, some of the nuances that these people are, are, are using and talking about. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. No, I think that's a good point, John. And and I agree with you. I think um, there is, like I said, a lot of good and a lot of right that is coming out of like some of these more postmodern ideas or understanding of things or the questions that they're asking. I think they are valid and and good. And so, again, like I said, we don't want to demonize people who are, um, you know, leaning more towards that position. I think how do we help our people to filter through things? I think that's where like I have a harder time is helping them to be able to understand what is good and what is not good to be discerning. Right. We need to train people how to think, obviously. Yeah. That's that's the deal. Yeah. Yeah. By uh, demonstrating sound thinking. By uh by going through these questions in front of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Excellent. That's excellent. Uh, maybe. Um, That's why I send people to college to learn how to be smart. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But we need to send them to, uh, you know, theology college. And that should happen through uh, preaching. Should happen through classes being taught at church. Yeah. Um, sure. It, it should happen through uh, us offering things to read on these topics that are a bit more, a bit less extreme a little bit more uh nuanced or balanced i i have a question just kind of with that you know it's it's interesting because i do feel like there has been this swing where your everyday christian feels like they have to be a scholar to understand understand the scriptures and i don't think that that has been the attitude historically and i don't think that that's necessarily god's plan for his scripture i think his scripture was meant to be read by everybody and and to be understood um but i think that's my fear is that we're coming to this stage where where there is more emphasis on academics and i think for ministers especially that's one of the things i think has been kind of the downfall not downfall but kind of the criticism i have of our churches is that we haven't we haven't really championed our our preachers, evangelists, you know, elders and stuff like that, being educated in theology and, and going to uh-huh. seminary. We've yeah. always unschooled ordinary men, um, you know, type of attitude towards things. And I, I think that's not always been the best approach. But for our everyday Christian, this idea of like having to go to theology school or having to be a scholar to really truly understand the scriptures, I think it can be really discouraging. and. F- damaging sometimes i think to their faith that they can't just read the bible and trust that they can understand what it says you know it's true they're unschooled ordinary men and that's pretty amazing and so i think something you know so like what does that do right that allows us to mobilize and equip a lot of people without requiring a degree but at the same time there's an extreme we want to avoid where we're not talking about getting christian education we're not valuing it enough so so maybe amanda your question is what you know, maybe how much should we promote Christian education? And I, I guess the question I would ask is, 
you know, what would we tell just the average churchgoer, you know, how to think about Christian education or even a topic like hermeneutics who are not going to go get a degree? Um, You know, how do we approach this maybe in, yeah, in that sort of way. Even since I've been part of our fellowship of churches, we've kind of gone through a couple of phases here. But we went through a phase in the 80s into the 90s and the early O's of, of kind of an anti-intellectual yeah. phase. Yes. And that's the result primarily of the influence of one person, mm-hmm. who, by the way, was a chemistry major in college. <laughs> Kim McKean was a chemistry major. Uh, so anti-intellectualism is just totally wrong and inappropriate. It's just, yes. You could bag that completely. Um, and yet, um, clearly, we could be too concerned about intellectual things, that's for sure. Only a f- fairly small fraction of members of our church need to get an advanced degree in theology. And you do, you do not need to have an advanced degree to work for the church to be a successful full-time minister. You absolutely do not. It's, not. it's not necessary. But I think we just should encourage all members of our churches to grow in their knowledge. I mean, yeah. that's that the Bible sure. talks about growing in knowledge. Uh, it's true that John was an unschooled, ordinary man. But if you read the book of, of John, you realize he got pretty smart over time. Yeah, he <laughs> did. I don't think yes, he, he did. got any degrees, but he, he took the time to uh, understand Greek philosophy. He clearly understands Greek philosophy at this mm-hmm. point in the Greek language. He could write fairly elegant Greek, not quite the same as say the Hebrew. So I think we need to value education. We need to offer a sort of a um, high school level kind of education classes mm-hmm. for our members, you know. Um, the way I see it is, and, and this in developing a teaching ministry in San Diego, this is something I thought about pretty carefully. We could divide our churches up into three or four groups. Uh, one group is the ones who uh, are very much interested in deepening their knowledge. Uh, if we offered an in-depth Bible class, they'd be there. They read books. Uh, that's maybe ten percent of our members, and we don't worry about those people. Then there's another about sixty or seventy percent who who really need to, to over time to deepen their knowledge of the Scripture, how to understand it, how to interpret it because it's an inoculation against all kinds of problems. Yeah. Then there's another 20, 30% that in-depth stuff never helped them in their whole life. I mean, they're pretty fairly simple people. And honestly, all the Bible education and, you know, they're going to be simple people to the day they die. And they don't really need a Bible education program in the church. Yeah. They just need some good hearts and some, you know, you know, they're all important. They're all, and there's some other groups. I think, uh, I think um, another group would be those who uh, are, are considering maybe a full-time role of some sort. I think that's a different educational thing there. I think we do need to offer local ministry training, yeah, uh, which includes biblical knowledge, theology, church history, those kinds of things that yeah. I think over time, anybody who's going to in quotes be in the ministry should certainly acquire the ability to do exegesis, you know, to know church history. And that, sure. But that can be over a 10-year period, a 15-year period. So um, so we need to offer in our churches a material for all of those groups. Yeah. 
And it's that middle group. That's the one you're talking about, that yeah. sort of 60 percent, 70 percent who really they're sharp enough. They need they need to be growing in their knowledge over time. Otherwise, they're going to get in trouble. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So we need to force feed them sometimes a little bit of of stuff. And they may not go to a class at nine in the morning, uh, you know, on church history. So yeah. we so we have to find ways to use our midweeks creatively. Okay. And, yep. You know, in order, you know, that's not the only thing we're going to do with midweeks. We're going to do a little bit of that. You know what I'm saying? We're going to, you know, and, and, and sprinkle things in our sermons that kind of just here and there. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Um, yeah. I, I appreciate but that. I agree, I agree with your premise which is in order to go to heaven, you don't need to know any of this stuff. I, I agree with that premise. And I believe you could be a simple Christian to the day you die. And that's, that's just awesome. Yeah. I, I, I don't disagree with that premise at all, but um, I don't think that that's meets all the needs that there, there are needs beyond that. Sure. And yeah. I, I think the average member that all that whole 78% block, they should have a basic understanding of hermeneutics eventually. Yeah. Somehow. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, me, yeah, I think being, you know, being in leadership, you know, the conversation convicts me to think just how can we work this into our, you know, church curriculum Sundays, you know, midweeks. Exactly. Right. Without expecting people to, you know, be experts. How do we just work this in? How does leadership work this in to to better equip? Yeah. That convicts me to think about that more. I would say this, if, if all of our Bible talk leaders know how some basic hermeneutics, then, you know, it'll kind of spread through them because, sure. you know, when I, when I lead a, bio, a group Bible study at my house, we ask deep questions, you know what I'm saying? And when I ask them, what does that, what's the author saying here? What, what's Paul saying here? I don't accept them. They just throw their spew, their opinion. I said, no, I asked you what <laughs> this you saying, you know? Yep. That's I, excellent. This, this is pretty basic stuff. I mean, even, yep. I, I believe the, the level of the Bible talk of the Bible study group, you know, I, I think we can train people even there. But, of course, that assumes the leaders know how to do that. Yeah. So I try to demonstrate that even in my leaders' meetings. I try to yeah. demonstrate that. that. That's an excellent point. That's something I've been thinking about a lot recently. It's, you know, how we how we preach a sermon or how we develop a, a, a Bible talk inadvertently teaches people hermeneutics, right? We're not using that language or whatever, but we're showing people how we process and how we work through it. And that's, that's yeah, good that's stuff. Yeah, that's why... Uh, some people are, all they ever do is topical sermons. They, they go to Andy Stanley and they download his outline and they sure. yep. give a sermon. All right. I, I'm, I'm only slightly exaggerating about certain people, even preachers in our church. I'm really yes. not exaggerating. Sure. Yep. Others have the view that you can only do exegetical preaching, that this is, this is a real thing. If you're not doing exegesis, I, I don't agree with that, but I do think that um, our our members do need to have a diet of exegetical preaching. Mm-hmm. Be that fifty percent, seventy percent, thirty percent. I I don't know. I I think topical sermons are just fine. You know, they're just <laughs> fine. Sure. I yep. do some. I uh, I would say probably thirty percent of the sermons I've done since I've gotten here have been topical. Yeah. But I do think we do need to have exegesis. Yeah. And. Uh, and I think that that alone will be helpful. Yeah, that's excellent. I appreciate Our that. Our mainline Church of Christ uh, friends, they, believe me, they, they, they're good at it. Yeah. <laughs> they're really good at it. 
we kind of lost that when we had our little split thing that happened in the 80s. That's one of the things we lost. Yeah. Good Bible study. Overall, the Churches of Christ are really good at that. that uh, I'm proud of the Churches of Christ, and I identify myself as yeah. Church of Christ. No, I think that's a good point, John. I think it it is something I think as leaders of the church, we really need to talk about and prioritize. Like, are we teaching our members the Bible? Are we teaching them how to think? Are we teaching them how to read the scriptures and have um, good hermeneutics and um, to be able to have discernment and all these different things? And I, I, that really does stick with me. And I do think as leaders in the ICOC, it's something we really need to prioritize and really start exercising. I want to address a a, a women's issue on this as well. I think that uh, to some extent we thought we need to send the guys off to the preaching school, get send the guys off to ACU. And it, I, it needs to be the men and oh, the women. 100% agree. Uh, 100%. When you say that, I, I agree, but I'm telling you that's not, you know, everybody in our movement agrees with that, but that's not what we actually do. I'm just, yeah. I'm just telling you. No. Because when, I, when, I tr- when I've tried to put together a teaching ministry in San Diego, getting women to even come, and I, I blame the men for that, honestly. I blame the men that the women don't come. Mm-hmm. And we do, our church has had a culture that uh, put women in their place. I, I, they, we have. I mean, that's part of why we got our problem right now. Sure. Now, that's, yep. not, that's not part of our hermeneutics <laughs> subject here. But it is relevant in that, yep. as, as, that uh, we need to make sure that, um, that uh, women and men, and men are participating somewhat equally in, in, these, in this process. And that women uh, who, uh, who feel drawn towards in-depth you know, theological studies, like why would you go to theology school? I, I'm, I'm afraid that attitude definitely still exists in our fellowship here in America. Yeah. And overseas, it's even worse. I mean, we act as if America is the only place we have churches, by the way. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. No, and I, really I appreciate that, John, because, I mean, one of the things we don't want to ignore is that there has been a lot of stuff um, in the ICOC that we have um, kind of held to as, like, doctrine that isn't really biblical. And a lot of it does have to do with women. You know what I mean? And I think... You know, we've talked about in previous episodes how we feel like if the church is really going to flourish, you have to have man and woman together. Like they come together, they complement each other, they help each other, they they do this together. It was God's design. Like he created Eve because Adam couldn't do it on his own. And so you have to have men and women in leadership, men and women in ministry, men and women doing theology classes, men and women, like, you know what I mean? Like we need each I other. I love how you snuck the word compliment in there. I love that. I was going to just throw it in there, right? <laughs> no, I'm but no, I'm one of those women who is drawn to theology and deeper study. And I love academic scholarly stuff. Like I, you know, I, I'm, I'm one of those women who wants to pursue stuff like that. So I think it is important for men and women together, you know, leading together yeah. to really understand the Bible deeply, to be able to teach our, Right. We need women teachers, that's for sure. Yes, I agree. Um, I agree. Amanda, is there anything else you know you wanted to throw out, or John, anything you want to mention? I think probably the one that would be good because I think it is, and you touched on it a tiny bit, 
But I think it is one of the things that we're, we're dealing with a lot today with whether or not we can trust the inerrancy of the scripture or whether the scriptures are divinely inspired or how we read the Bible is this, this um, question of culture, right? If the scriptures were written, which they were to a specific audience 2000 years ago, right? How do we know that they apply today to us, that they have any room for us or, or that we should, that they're principles we should live by today? Like where does culture come into all of this and how do we apply it to our lives today? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, again, we have to approach every case on its own merits. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, we have to ask the right question. Is there something theological going on here or not? Is there, you know, um, you know, John Mark Hicks denies the very existence of timeless contextless propositions. Okay. So if you believe in timeless contextless propositions, then, uh, you know, how do you detect those? And we, we just need to learn how to think. Um, uh, for example, in first Corinthians 11, there's theology going on there for sure. In first Corinthians 14, it's mm-hmm. not clear that there is. All right. So we need to, you know, I, I don't, I don't, you know, you're looking for a simple answer, but I'm, I'm not going to be able to give you one. Yeah. But I would say this, that uh, clearly to ignore the cultural reasons that something was said is that's a huge error. Yeah, sure. definitely. However, to assume that every statement is meaning is determined fully by culture and that's the only lens, uh, that's just that's just a pretty obvious mistake. So we just have to learn to ask smart questions at the right time at the right place. But I do, I'll say this. I believe that there are timeless propositions in the Bible. And I believe that um, there are things that are true and there are things that are not true. But there are also things that um, are stated, which without understanding the cultural reason it's said and, and if you read this book, one thing that he's, he's, he's a wonderful scholar. He'll, he'll note. Bottom line is we don't really know the cultural thing going on in many cases. We have to guess. Yeah. And even though we can we can learn a lot about the culture, we don't you don't really know. So um, yeah. you know it's 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 not it's not an easy thing. But uh, I do think that we can discover a, a, a reasonable theology we can stand on. I think we can discover a biblical narrative we can stand on as well. So are there Maybe. any questions? brought up like first Corinthians 11, you brought up first Corinthians 14. Are there any like specific questions that you would recommend people ask in reading that, like those scriptures? Oh, there's all kinds of questions. Yeah. Take my, take my hermeneutics class. <laughs> you know, questions like, is this essential, important or unimportant? But, you know, that's always, that's always a good question. Mm-hmm. Yep. It is what's being said here. Is it a theological thing or not? There's, a lot of questions like that. Yeah. I, I think I've suggested a few of them during this talk that we just need to learn to ask the right kind of questions in the right context. Uh, I think you're going to do that as you go through some of these scriptures. Mm-hmm. You know, what's the context? What What's God trying to accomplish through Genesis 2 and 3? What's, what's he trying to do there? And I, I think that's going to affect how you understand what's, what, what's going on for sure. 
And there's going to be different views on that, by the way. And you're going to have to accept that. Um, although I believe there is one absolutely 100% correct answer, <laughs> that you may not have access to that 100% absolutely correct answer. Yeah, so we have to have point. some humility as we do these things. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. I, but I would say, uh, you know, as I look at, say, um, you know, First Corinthians 11 and, and Second Timothy, I say uh, the idea that uh, men are exactly the, men and women are exactly the same is pretty hard to defend. Yeah, I would that agree. That they're equal is you know Galatians three that they're equal is you know a, a good question is yeah all right uh, here's a good kind of question uh, right so we have two passages that seem potentially to be in conflict for example. Ephesians 2, 10 and 11 said, we're saved by grace through faith, not by works so no one can boast, okay? And we see James 2 where it says, we're not saved by faith apart from works. Mm -hmm. Those are, are both important, but the question is, which is a theological statement and which is the more fundamental truth? All right, so which is the more fundamental truth, that we're saved by grace th through faith, not by works, or that we're not saved by works apart from faith and the answer is the first one is the more fundamental truth so we start there we start with the more fundamentally true thing and in the men and women's issue the more the more fundamentally true thing is that men and women are equal that's the fundamental truth mm -hmm. all right and then questions about headship are are are, are, are a minor thing on top of that yeah. so i listened to seven out of the eight parts of the of the hermeneutics class, and so, um, which class is that? The the one you did last year. Really? Wow! Yeah. I'm impressed. Um, and so I can pretty confidently now. I haven't listened to the last part, so unless you unless it goes totally off the rails, I can recommend it. It's a it's a good <laughs> it's a good class. <laughs> yeah. well, part of it, we had people presenting their little interpretation of the scripture they picked. Yeah, I was but just. I didn't cover much. I was just diving into that. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't finish that last portion. Yeah, that's the one you can skip pretty much if you want. Okay, so then then I can confidently recommend the eight part class. Um, it absolutely is helpful. It includes tons of questions, tons of examples, and you even work through specific, you know, uh, differing scriptures like you just presented with with Ephesians two and with James. Really, yeah, it's fantastic. I'd, I'd recommend it to anybody listening to this to go dive into that that class series. It'll be worth your time. Yeah. Fee and Stewart, people recommend Fee and Stewart for uh, hermeneutics. Uh, it's, it's, it's almost too basic, actually. It's pretty good, but it's a little bit basic. So maybe like a good start and then graduate to your course. Oh, I just start with my course then. There you go. Yeah. Let's start with John's course. Oh, I think Daniel agreed that course is pretty basic. It really is basic. It starts assuming nothing. Well, it helps you to figure out how to draw the bull, and that's really important. Yeah, got to draw the bull before you can do full-on cubism. Now we didn't. No, I didn't start with the bull. We started with styrofoam shapes. But yeah, it's same principle. But <laughs> in your art classes, or yep, yeah. So you know, we start. We you know, before you do anything else, you learn how to draw, and you learn how shadows work, and you learn how yeah. you know how to de depict. A depth with on a two D surface. Perspective. And all that stuff. Exactly. Start really, really, really basic, and then even when you get to painting, the first thing you ever do is, you know, still life. So you're not doing deep personal work until you're four or five, right? It's yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh, 
when I was in college, uh, I had a girlfriend who was an art major. So there we Madonna go. and child number one, Madonna and child number two. Yeah, <laughs> all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Oh man. Yep. Been there, done that. Yep. Absolutely. I think drawing is the hardest thing in the world to do. So I probably couldn't even draw the circle or the sphere. Like that would be, you know, <laughs> be pe- too intense for me. People think that, but art's totally teachable. It's hundred percent, hundred percent learnable, just like hermeneutics. Yes. Oh, the con- there you go. It's <laughs> like singing, just like music. Yeah, it's learnable. John, I just really appreciate you coming on and talking yep. about these complicated things. You know, we want simple answers. And, you know, those of us who have studied our hermeneutics, we know it's not simple. And it is hard to just give a simple like, here's this three-step thing. Ask this question, this question, this question. So we really appreciate you coming on here and weighing in with us on um, hermeneutics and your perspective and your humility. Like we're really grateful for all of that. It's been fun talking. Yep. It's been excellent. Great. That's fun. Yep. Thanks a bunch, John. And again, I'd recommend people checking out evidenceforchristianity.org. Tons of great resources there. And please listen to that, that eight part class. It'll absolutely be worth your time. John, is there anything you want to plug while you're here? Shameless plug. Uh, I got a book that came out like last week. Daniel Profeta para las Naciones. Spanish translation of Daniel. You wrote a book about me? Thanks, man. (laughs) No. I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm flattered. I will dog you. (laughs) And this came out last year on Hebrews. Nice. Oh, wow. Right on. I've got another one that I like that I published last year called In Christ. So uh, uh, basically a book about the grace of God. Nice. Uh, Very nice. Yes. And I've got another book coming out in a month or two. It's uh, it's like a, a Bible talks, basically, like sixty or okay. seventy Bible I'm gonna, talks. I'm going to get that one. I love that, John. One of the things I know, one of the things I know about you that I've heard from our dear friends in the Bakersfield Church is that you are one of the like hardest working, like go 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 type of people. I cannot believe you just like pulled out four books that you've written in a very short amount of time. <laughs> so. I love that. I think that solidifies just how hard of a worker you are and how much you love God's word. All right. Well, um, everybody, thanks for listening. John, thanks again for being on. And and Amanda, thanks for leading the questions. And uh, we'll look forward to diving into some of the more specific scriptures down the road. Thank you all for listening.